our series is called The Visitor, and leading up to Christmas, we're just looking at some different parts of Jesus' life. And today, I'm going to talk about him in his miracle work, the miracle worker. But before I get into the sermon today, I'd like to ask for a favor from you, just to help me uh, get started, and, and maybe to help get your thinking going along this topic. I want you to think about the most impressive person that you've ever had the opportunity of meeting. Ordinarily, it's, you know, in some kind of venue where maybe a great person comes in to speak or perhaps, you know, you're having some sort of corporate meeting and maybe the head of your company comes in or it just may be that it was a chance encounter. Maybe you were at the airport and you looked up and, and there was somebody you recognized from television or you recognized from a book and you just walked over and said hello. I want you to think about that. Who is the most impressive person you ever met? And I want you to think about what made them impressive. You know, I, I think about someone like, like Emmett Smith. You know, here was a guy that was the, the leading rushing, uh, you know, the leading football rusher in, in history. He ran the ball for more yards than anybody else. But then he goes into dancing, and, and the rest is history. Um, what makes Emmett different from me? I mean, because Emmett basically plays with the same laws of physics that I play with. I mean, I, I, Emmett doesn't live in any different atmosphere than I, but somehow whenever he, he, he touches stuff athletically, he just goes right to the top. Uh, what about Bill Gates? What makes Bill Gates different from me? I have a computer. <laughs> what makes Jack Welch different from me? You know, a dollar for me is a dollar for Jack Welch until Jack starts handling it. That's where things get a little different. I guess all I'm trying to say is when you think about that man or that woman that impresses you so much and the most impressive person that you've ever met or maybe even that you'd like to meet, the truth of the matter is they play with the same natural laws. They play with the same laws of physics that you and I play with. The difference is they just push them to the edge. And that's why we call them great. That's why we're impressed with them. Whether we're talking about a great surgeon or a great athlete, a great artist, or just a great person. You're just impressed with their characteristics. At the end of the day, what impresses us about that person is that they take the same laws that we work with and they push them to the edge. What I want to talk about today is, is Jesus. Because he's different from the greatest person you've ever met. Because even the greatest person, the most impressive person that you've ever met, cannot change the laws of nature or physics. When Jesus was on the earth, he did something different. He rewrote the laws of nature. He did incredible things. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He fed people, you know, 20,000 people with just a sack lunch by multiplying what was in the sack lunch. He touched people who were blind and caused them to see. People who were paralyzed were able to walk. And the most amazing thing to me is dead people, people who were clearly dead, been dead for days in some cases. He raised back to life. Now, the most impressive person you and I have ever met couldn't do that. He's different because he came along and he basically wrote the, rewrote the laws of nature, and we call those acts miracles, the unexplainable. And I want to talk to you about that today. I mean, when you read this, the Gospels, the four stories of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can't avoid miracles. They're, they're everywhere. In fact, I reread the Gospels this week and just reread all the miracles. They're astounding. And you, you just keep going over and over and over and over. All four writers keep talking about these, these unbelievable miracles that Jesus did. And we look at those and we say, what's up with those miracles? And, and I, my guess is here today... When you think about the miracles that Jesus did, you're probably in one of three categories. 
you know, you're, in, you're maybe in a little skeptical category. And you read about all that and you say, I don't see that happening today. I don't think it really happened. Or maybe it happened kind of, but it didn't really happen the way the writers wrote it down. Maybe, you know, Jesus just touched somebody and his presence was so soothing that they felt better. And somebody wrote down that he got healed. And so maybe you're in that category. You say, well, I like the teachings of Jesus. You know, Mark, and when you teach and you talk about how to live a successful life and all that, I'm into it. I'm all over it. But boy, this idea about Jesus, you know, countermanding the norms and things, I, I really struggle with that. So maybe that's where you are today. And then probably many of us, you know, we're, we're sort of church people. And we, you know, we've heard about the miracles. We read about them in, in Sunday school. Her teachers teach about them. But, but we really haven't thought about them in a long time. And it's kind of like blowing the dust off the Bible to go back and to examine the miracles. And then there are some of you I'm talking to today, and this is very important to you. Not that it isn't important to the others, but I'm just saying it's, it's significantly important to your life because you're just going through some area of your life where normal won't cut it. I mean, you're just dealing with something right now that if you have to live with the norms and the laws of average and probabilities and the way things are, it's not going to end well for you. And you're just saying, Mark, when I, when I talk with God and when I think about miracles, it's serious for me because I've I got to touch God. So my guess is you're in one of those three groups today when I talk to you about miracles. And my hope, obviously, is when I get through that we're all in the third group. Because like Doris sang a few moments ago, you already heard the sermon. God is still doing great things. Amen. I mean, if you think God's miracle working days are over, well, you just, you just need to know God a little better, which is what this whole deal is about today. So what were the miracles about? I want to give you one sentence to think about, and I'll come back to it several times this morning, but I just want to give you one thing to think about. Here's what the miracles were about in a nutshell. And if you understand this, you'll be able to understand every miracle Jesus performs. Jesus came to a broken world. His heart went out to those who were hurting, and he offered little glimpses of what things would be like if he were king. That's all you need to know about the miracles. God came to a broken world. His heart went out to people who were hurting, and he pulled back the curtain, just showed little glimpses of what things would be like if he were king. Now, you can imagine my quandary today. I've got to open the Bible and read you a sampling of Jesus' miracles. Try that on for size. For those of you who like to teach and study the Bible, just try ranking the miracles enough to where you can read a couple of them in front of people and say, I, I think I'll read these because they're so awesome. How do you pick? But I chose a couple of miracles because they happen within the same context. And I think also, too, they really point out what I'm trying to share with you about the nature of Jesus' miracles. So if you have your Bible this morning, you can read with me in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, and I think these Verses will be up on the IMAG screens as well, so if you don't have your Bible, you can just follow along that way. But if you'll just grant me a little latitude, I'd like to read for a while and share with you these wonderful miracles that Jesus did. I think we're going to learn something from them. In verse 22, the Bible says, A leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her and heal her so she can live. Now, you know, in our Western culture, in our 21st century America, we sort of read that and think, okay, I just, you know, read a news blurb. It's a lot bigger than that. This was a leader of the synagogue. By today's standards, he would be the president of the synagogue. He was a very influential person. And by this point, Jesus was at odds with local religious leaders. And they didn't like it. And they were against it. So for this leader of a synagogue to come running after Jesus, kneeling at his feet, asking for a favor, that's pretty amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, I've watched one thing in 30 years of preaching and pastoring, 
You know, there are a lot of people who are stiff-necked toward God and kind of blow God off most of the time. But you know, you can, get, you can get needy enough, you can be hurting enough that you'll chase after God. And that's what happened with the synagogue leader. He ran after Jesus and he said, my daughter's dying. Please come, lay your hands on her, heal her. What did he think Jesus was? He thought Jesus was a healer. Okay, just file that away. In his mind, that was the limitations that Jesus had. He was a healer. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed crowding around him. You can imagine, this is like this entourage that you see, you know, around a celebrity. And I mean, everybody's bumping and jostling. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? And he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I like this. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. What do they think Jesus is? They think he's a teacher. He's something special. They know he's got some sort of special power. Jairus thinks he's a healer. The crowd thinks he's a teacher. But now they have reached, they have crossed the Rubicon. There is a line that cannot be crossed again. The girl is dead. And they say, there's no use bothering this man anymore. Your daughter is dead. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is what I love about Jesus. Because when all those great people you've met, when they have to leave the room because they can't do anything, Jesus can still go with you. We don't know how blessed we are. But even those physicians in our church who talk to me about what they do, they share with me, Pastor, we reach a point where there's nothing more that we can do. And, and, and it's, so it is with with professionals in every stripe and every situation they get to the edge of their limitations but the cool thing about jesus is jesus is not stopped there they said don't trouble yourself don't trouble the teacher anymore the girl is already dead but verse six verse 36 but jesus overheard them and said to jairus don't be afraid just have faith there's only one person who can say that then then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. You know, that's one thing. If, if you can't have confidence in Jesus, you have to leave the room. He took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And he told them, I love this, to give her something to eat. That's your Lord. That's the person you follow. He's awesome. 
He's not stopped when others are stopped. He does miracles. Miracles are simply the unexplainable. That's what gives people trouble with miracles because we live in a modern and postmodern era when science has proliferated and we want an explanation for everything. Not just what happens in the natural realm. We want an explanation for everything that happens in the political world, athletic world, any, war, any part of our culture. We want an explanation, which is why we analyze everything to death. We want an explanation. But miracles can never be explained. That's the very nature of miracles. That is the whole point. Miracles are the unexplainable. And throughout the years, skeptics have looked at the Bible because there are miracles from Genesis all the way through the book of the Revelation. Skeptics look at the Bible and say, well, I don't know. I can't explain that. And they attempt to explain it. One of the most humorous and pathetic things that I've watched through the years, I'm not saying that to be insulting. It is sad. But one of the, one of the most pathetic thing, things I've watched through the years is how skeptics try to explain with natural reasoning the miracles. It's a waste of time. I mean, probably my favorite is, you know, the Bible says when Moses and the Israelites came to the Red Sea, God opened up the water, they walked across on dry land, water closed up, killed Pharaoh's army. And skeptics read that and they say, well, I don't see how that could happen. Oh, they start doing a little study and they say, well, there are places in the Red Sea where it gets a little shallow. And maybe it just, you know, it was kind of knee-deep water and they walked across in knee-deep water and got over to the other side and really God didn't open the Red Sea. That's how it happened. And that's cool until you have to explain why knee-deep knee water could drown Pharaoh and all his army. It is kind of pathetic. You can't explain the unexplainable and that's why God puts miracles in the Bible because God wants us to know there are things that he does that are way beyond our comprehension. Now here's the thing. Here's why we struggle with miracles. We struggle with miracles because we say it's not normal. It doesn't, you know, we say, can miracles really happen? Because I don't see them happening in normal life. Miracles are not normal. Well, let's back off from that for just a moment. Let's analyze that comment. What we're really saying is miracles are not normal for us. But we need to remember this world is not everything. God did not come from this world. He made this world. The world as we know it with natural law is kind of a parenthesis. And we live between those brackets. And there are norms. There are laws of averages. There are just things that happen in normal life that we're experiencing because that is life as it is normal for us. For instance, we have time and space. But God invented time and space. Here's what I'm getting to. What we must understand is there is normal for us and there is normal for God. When Jesus came and did a miracle, he was just doing what was normal for him. He was just doing, what, how, he was doing what's normal where he lives. He, you know, think about the miracles that Jesus did and, and what he did. And I think many times people fail to realize that it wasn't like Jesus was doing a magic show. I mean, there, wasn't, there weren't billboards outside Jerusalem saying, come see, the, come see the magnificent Jesus do miracles. He walks on water. He turns water into wine. He heals people. Be there. It wasn't like that at all. He just met people where they were, and if they were blind, he, he made them see. If they were paralyzed, he made them able to walk. If they were hurting and afraid, he helped them emotionally. I mean, Jesus just met people where they were. And think about this. All he did was write things. God came to a broken world. His heart went out to people who were hurting, and he offered glimpses of what the world would be like if he was king. All Jesus did was just for that little moment make things normal for people who live in heaven. In heaven there are no blind people. In heaven there are no paralyzed people. 
In heaven, there are no scared people. In heaven, there are no dead people. So it wasn't that Jesus did the abnormal. He just came and did what was normal for him. He just did what was normal where he lives. He had come to a broken world. And he, his heart went out to people who were hurting in this broken world. And for just a little moment, he pulled back the curtain and let them live the way people live in heaven. That's all there is to the miracles. Now, I know somebody is still skeptical. And you're saying, I still don't know about this. I want you to think about a couple of things here. And I'm not trying to, to be defensive and I'm not trying to, to debate, but I just want to point out a couple of things. First thing I want to point out is, has it, ever, has it ever occurred to you that nobody ever accused Jesus of being a faker? I, accused, I mean, they hated him. Eventually, you know, they wanted him crucified. They accused him of doing miracles on the Sabbath. They accused him of doing miracles in his own name. They accused him, in, in, in the most awful thing of all, they accused him of doing miracles in the power of the devil, which was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But nobody said he was a faker. I mean, nobody said, hey, that water just looks like wine. Or nobody said, I bet that guy really wasn't blind. Or I bet that guy's still dead. I mean, nobody said those kinds of things. Because it was too apparent, it was too obvious. In many cases, the people whom Jesus had healed, the townspeople had known them for years. Some had been in this condition since birth. This was no head trick done by a, you know, by a faith healer out there in a tent somewhere. These were real miracles. It happened too many times with too much evidence. In fact, his enemies, they couldn't call him a faker. All they could think of to do was to put him to death. This is interesting because after Jesus raised Lazarus to, death, uh, to, to life when he was dead, when Jesus raised him back to life in John chapter 11, the enemies of Jesus didn't know what to do. They said, we just have to kill him. In fact, they even wanted to kill Lazarus again. Jesus just got him out of the grave and they wanted to kill him again. And it wasn't that they were saying it didn't happen. They were saying, we've got to stop this guy. The issue is, you know, when, we look, when skeptics look back on the miracles that Jesus did, skeptics just say that somebody had a flawed perspective. We don't know who it was. Maybe it was the writers of the gospel. They just wanted to pump Jesus' resume up, and they just wrote these fanciful tales, and we read them. Or it could be that there are those who say it was mass hypnosis. Jesus did something before the crowd, and it looked, looked wow, and it just kept extrapolating. And, and before long, we had these, these tales in the Bible. Somebody had a flawed perspective. Why? Because the things that Jesus did aren't just, they're just not normal in our world. But I want you to think about something for a moment. Really, we're the ones who have a flawed perspective because we haven't seen where Jesus lives. Suppose for a moment you'd only known Sedgwick County. All your life you'd, you'd lived within the parameters and confines of Sedgwick County. You'd never left. And someone comes from Colorado and says, you know, you travel far enough west, you get out by Denver, there are mountains out there. Well, what are mountains? Well, just these big old things that just rise up out of the ground. I mean, sometimes 14,000 feet up in the sky, you know, it could be warm down at the bottom. There's snow on, up on top. And for us who live in Sedgwick County, if that's all you'd ever known, you'd have a hard time swallowing that. Because you say, no, the, it's flat. It's flat. Our old location was, I never will forget when I moved here in 1985 from Texas. I couldn't get over how flat it was. Our old location, trust me, was at Hillside and Mount Vernon. I drove around for weeks trying to find the hill. I finally came to the conclusion that it was the embankment of an overpass. That's all I could figure out. But if somebody said to you, you know, there are mountains out there, you say, I've never seen that. That's not what's normal for us in Sedgwick County. 
Suppose you'd never left Sedgwick County and somebody came and told you about an ocean. You know, there's a sandy beach and water as far as you see. You mean like Cheney Lake? No, not like that. I mean, just water forever. We'd struggle with that, wouldn't we? Because of our flawed perspective. The Bible comes along and says that Jesus made lame people walk and blind people see and dead people come back to life. And we say, well, I don't know. I've lived in Sedgwick County all my life and I've never seen anything like that happen. But remember, we're living in the brackets. We're living in the parentheses. Truth of the matter is, with the world that you and I live in today in 21st century America, the average person on the street doesn't think miracles really happen, or if they do, they think they happen in a sort of fuzzy, surreal, explainable kind of way. Most people I talk to today have two switches on the things that happen. There's the explainable and coincidence. And it works like this, even with, with people who are normally intelligent. If I can't explain it, it's coincidence. It just happened. That's why people believe, I'm not trying to be offensive this morning, but that's why people believe in evolution. I've never had anybody, professor, teacher, I've never had anybody really give me a cogent, coherent explanation for evolution. People get, you know, dragged down in all this minutia every once in a while, but when you, when you come up for air, there really isn't anything there. Why? Because people don't know how we got here. And so if it's not explainable, if it's not testable and repeatable, it's coincidence. Voila evolution. That coincidence is a, a wonderful synonym for evolution. Random happenings. Either explain it or it's coincidence. But God comes along and says there's so much more. And even things that often you and I hold up to coincidence, I wonder how much of it is God. I was talking to my son last night. I was just kind of going over this message with him. I said, what, what do you, when, you, when you think about miracles in your life, what stands out to you more than anything else? And he said, the things that God kept from happening to me. I think that's pretty powerful. I mean, I remember, I, don't, I know I shouldn't belabor this, but you know, I, I go around drinking these big Diet Cokes that I get from McDonald's, you know, these 42-ounce drinks. And uh, for years, you know, I'd, I'd stop at the McDonald's over here in North Rock, and they know me, and oftentimes they'll just have my Diet Coke waiting for me when I get there. They see my car come in the parking lot, they'll just go and, and do it. Every once in a while, I just order something else just to have fun with them. But they're really pleasant. We always exchange pleasantries. This happened probably about 10 years ago. I remember I'd, I'd driven up, and... I was the only customer in the, in the store. And there were three or four people behind the counter. And ordinarily, they just they came forward and greet me and all that kind of thing. But they all turned their backs to me. And nobody waited on me. And I waited about 45 seconds past the point where I felt that I should have been waited on. And I, I, I'd like for you to think that your pastor is a patient man, but I really struggle with patience. Finally, I just had all I, I just turned around, walked out of the store, got back in my car, got on K96, and the, the building wasn't constructed. It was just a construction site at that time. But I got in my car and I was driving back and about 45 seconds ahead of me on K96, I watched a gravel tra trailer truck cartwheel over into my lane. And I realized that if I had left right about when I would have normally would have left, I'd have been right at that spot. Now you can say that's coincidence. But the next day when I walked into McDonald's, man, it was the same just like always. It was, hey, how are you doing? No, I can't thing. I just wonder how many of the things that we hold up to coincidence in our lives is really God at work. But now let's talk about something else for just a moment. Why did God do these miracles? Why did Jesus do all these miracles? The answer is given to us in John chapter 20, in verses 30 and 31. John is signing off to his gospel. He's written his story of Jesus, and he adds this. He said, 
Jesus did many, many more things than are recorded in his book. You and I, when we read the Gospels about the miracles Jesus did, we just have a, a synopsis. We have a sampling of what Jesus did. John said, if all the things he did were written in books, the world couldn't contain the books. But he said this. He said, these are written that you may believe on Jesus, and believing you will have life through his name. You and I live a long time separated from the life of Jesus. 21 centuries almost. And how do we get out of this life and get into heaven? By believing on Jesus Christ. Not by doing good works, not by being religious, but by believing on Jesus. And the Bible says the reason why Jesus did these miracles is so that we would know that he was somebody different from the other great people of the world, the other leaders of religions, that we would know that he was someone totally special, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life through his name. In fact, Jesus would say at one point, if you can't believe me for my words, believe me just for the signs and the works that I do. When I look at the life of Jesus and I realize that nobody ever accused him of, of being a faker, I realize he's somebody I can put my confidence in. But now let's get to the, what I think is the best part for us who have already received Jesus. I could be talking to somebody today and you say, man, Mark, I love reading these stories. And Let me tell you what I wish. I wish Jesus was on the earth today. I wish he was still in Bethlehem or Galilee or whatever, I'd get a plane ticket. I mean, I'd, I'd get a second mortgage on my house if I had to. I'd get on an airplane, and I'd fly over to where he is, and I'd find him, and I'd, I'd be like that woman that just said, let me, touch the, let me touch your robe. And I'd like, to, I'd like to ask him to help me. I've gone as far as the norms say I can go in my marriage. And if the laws of probability rule, my marriage isn't going to make it, so I've got to have something more than normal. Or with my health, I, I appreciate what medical science has done, but I've I got to have something more than normal. And if I could just get to where he was, if he was just on the earth today, I wish I could go talk to him. Well, let me give you some things to think about. Number one, he's alive. Because he rose from the grave. And the Bible says he is in heaven listening to you. Now, here's the part that just amazes me. I sat down here before the service, and I thought, I really want to make sure the Bible says this before I say it because it's just so good. Are you ready for this? The Bible says he will run to your aid. You don't have to fly to him. He will run to you. Now, I, that blows my mind, and I can't imagine because, you know, Bill Gates will not run to me. <laughs> President Bush will not run to me. Jack Welch will not run to help me. But the Bible says, because he understands, because he lived where we live and went through what we go through, he is the kind of high priest that you can call to, and he will run to help you. What do you need to know when you call? Well, number one, you need to know that he's God. And you've got to be serious about that. You have to believe that he really is God. Not just believe that you want something, but believe that he's God and that he's Lord of your life. Number two, you have to accept the fact that this is not going to be heaven on earth. Because even the people Jesus helped in the Bible, they still died. This is, never, this is a broken world. Remember, God came to a broken world. His heart went out to people who were hurting. And he offered glimpses of what the world would be like when he was a king. A taste is another word. This world's never going to be heaven. 
I thought about that on Thanksgiving Day. My wife was cooking turkey, and I came in there, and boy, is there anything that smells as good as turkey cooking, right? I could smell it all over the house. And it was still about two hours before we were going to eat. But the turkey came out, and so I went up there, and I said, I, I really want some of that. And she said, you know, you'll spoil your lunch. And finally she said, okay, I'll give you a taste. And I do believe that there are times when God gives us a taste. It isn't going to be heaven, but he'll give us a taste. And a taste is good. That's the second thing you need to know. And the third thing, you've got to be serious. You've got to be serious about it. I think many people, they sort of like throw up a prayer to God. God, I need help. Do this miracle for me. And then they sort of get on with their stuff and forget about God. And then when God doesn't answer their prayer, they come back and say, well, I don't, that wasn't fair. I asked God for it and he didn't give it to me. But how serious are we in pursuing God? Are we really serious about a relationship with him? Or are we serious about winning the lottery? Because you've got to be serious about him. But the Bible tells us this. If you ask him for his help, he will run to your aid. And so today, whoever you are and whatever you need, I would encourage you to ask him. Just ask him. You don't have to go to Bethlehem. You don't have to go to, you know, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. You can just reach out and call out to him by faith and tell God what you need. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Here's your homework. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he's done. When you've got to ask God today for something, and some of you will because you're going to hear this message and your mind is going to be changed about miracles. You just need to remember that one line. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he's done. And then the Bible says that the peace of God will come and just garrison. It'll come and put a fortress around you and God will carry you through what you're dealing with. God came to a broken world. His heart went out to people who were hurting and he gave glimpses of what the world would be like when he is king.